Welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. I'm here to welcome you into the world of orgasmic living by hosting experts to discuss orgasmic topics such as nutrition, spirituality, personal development, sexuality, and much more. Here, we will offer lifestyle lessons that can help you lead a fulfilling, joyous, and orgasmic lifestyle. I'm your guide, Venus O'Hara. Welcome to the 13th episode of the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. In this new moon episode, we'll be interviewing Dr. Courtney Tracy, also known as the Truth Doctor. She makes content about mental health on social media, and recently she won the American Influencer Awards for the Nutrition and Wellness Influencer of the Year. Then I'll be discussing the book I'm reading now, which is Modern Sex Magic by Donald Michael Craig. And finally, we'll be experiencing a guided meditation with affirmations for mental health. But first, let's talk about my own journey with mental health as an influencer. My growth or journey as an influencer has been very gradual and quite slow at moments but with several peaks of popularity. It all started in 2009 when I left my job in luxury real estate to set up my personal blog, venusohara.org. I had no idea what awaited me, but I just knew that I had to do it. There was something inside me that really drove me. I guess it was the divine. Anyway, soon after making this decision, I started to get projects in my selected subject of sexuality and it felt like a massive confirmation that I was on the right path. However, I must admit that it was a little bit crazy or weird <laughs> to actually think about the notion of being seen by strangers on the internet, especially when a lot of my content was about artistic nudes or fetish photography or even revealing some of my most intimate experiences or fantasies. But still, I felt like that, that I had to actually share those things with the world. And sometimes part of me didn't really feel that it, it was intimate. I just felt privileged that I could do so, write about my most exciting moments and get paid for it. It was amazing. Soon after creating my blog, I actually became quite well known in Spanish media. There weren't that many bloggers around at that time, maybe 10, 11 years ago, and I was offering something quite unique. I was writing about sexuality from my own perspective and supplying erotic photos. And also the fact that I wasn't writing in my own native tongue, I was writing in Spanish, it just felt so liberating to me because it wasn't my language. And sometimes I would translate some of the things I'd written to myself personally into English and I'd think, oh my God, that's really kind of explicit or revealing. But it just felt like very liberating for me, that whole process. I started writing for El País, which is Spain's biggest newspaper, and I wrote over 100 articles. Often my articles would get to the top 10 or even number one sometimes, so I had a lot of exposure. I also did some front cover magazine shoots, I did some TV but not much, and some radio. So I was really, really in the public eye for anyone who was interested in sexual content. 
and who was curious. And also a lot of my articles got to the front page of the El Pais website. So imagine someone was looking at, let's say, politics or weather, a weather report, and then in the corner they would see some sex um, article title and a picture that was quite suggestive. So obviously it kind of felt even more alluring in that context. So anyway, I was receiving a lot of publicity and also from from Spain and from South America. But the difference between being a columnist or someone who's in the media and an influencer is that when you're in the media, mainstream media, your your the people who are reading your content are not your followers. It could be anyone, anyone who's not even interested in your work or who, who is supporting you. So you're kind of exposing yourself to a lot of negativity potentially. Whereas when you're an influencer, it's kind of like all the people who are following you are for the most part interested in what you're doing, but you're not well known outside your circles. Whereas I was being thrown into this kind of mainstream mainstream audience sometimes. And that was good and bad. It, on the good side, it meant that I got a lot of exposure. Sometimes when my articles got to number one, my website would crash or I, I got offers to go on the TV and stuff like that. So that was kind of cool. And it also opened the door to other um, collaborations as well. I, I published three books in Spain and I had lots, I had, I've got eight boxes here of print media that I've been in. So it's been amazing. But this process, I really, was just so incredible for me. It helped me to become a writer. At first, it took me three days to to write an article. And then it got to the point where I could just bang it out in, in a few hours. And the more personal my articles became, the more successful they were. And I really enjoyed having, it was almost like catharsis or paid therapy. It was amazing. But on the downside, I did have to deal with lots of trolling and negative comments. And I must confess that I actually coped with it a lot better than some of the other writers on this blog that I was participating in. I guess maybe because of the language, it didn't feel so personal when I read a negative um, a negative comment. And sometimes I must confess that some of the negative comments actually amused me and they inspired me for future for future articles. Because sometimes to, to write so often and so many articles, I did need inspiration. And normally I'm not really lacking inspiration, but this was a kind of a good springboard for another article and um, much more so than, than uh, positive comments to be honest. There were, were a couple of times that I did find this exposure and negative negative comments to be tr- quite challenging. I remember once I'd written this article called, um, I had called it, How to Be a Good Wife. And it was about a wife school that I had found in the UK. And I thought it was incredibly amusing that someone who had been a previous mistress had given some guidelines to wives to prevent their husbands from straying. But of course, you can never prevent that. Someone's going to be unfaithful. They are, no matter what you do. (laughs) That's what I believe anyway. But I just thought the concept of it was so interesting that I decided to write about it. And someone at El Pais decided to change the title of my article and called it the good wife guide of, of and it was a title that had been used in the 1950s in Franco Spain so this kind of really provoked a lot of feminists and feminist organizations in Spain and a lot of people were very very angry with me and at first i i just thought it was just another article that was provoking people you know like many of my others had 
But as the day went on, I got trolled, trolled, trolled so much in Twitter. I had messages being sent to me. People were copying and pasting my article and ripping it apart and, and really scrutinizing it. And by the end of the day, it was just too much. It was just all over the place. And this kind of trolling went on for three days. It was just, oh my God. <laughs> it was quite amusing now when I think about it, because my editor actually called me and congratulated me for this extra traffic that was happening. However, people were still upset and people had written in some complaints and I had to actually rectify it somehow. So I decided, oh, I'm going to write another article called Guide to the Good Husband or something like that, which was, um, yeah, that was not as provocative. That's how I kind of got myself out of that mess. But my intention was never one to make people angry. I mean, I totally consider myself to be a feminist, but I guess in Spain, there's lots of um, wounds or, or trauma associated with the Franco time and uh, and wives and housewives, etc. So to actually put a name or, or a title of my article that had been, you know, painful from the past was not my doing. I mean, I, but I, at the same time, I couldn't say, "Hey, I didn't even write that title." Someone in the El Pais thought they'd be clever and and then and then change the title of my article, which is a title that you know people were just looking at the title and not really looking at, looking at the contents of the article because they were just provoked. And um, yeah, that was another very very bad. Another occasion, I was um, I was promoting a book and I got a lot of press. I went to Madrid one day and I did. 13 interviews in a day. And I was just loving it, just meeting all these journalists and talking about sex and my own philosophy on it. And, um, and again, I was, um, how would I say, so someone had put this photo of me um, on the cover of this free newspaper with an apple and a pear. And that was actually from a famous quote from someone who was a politician or someone about sexuality. So I didn't even know what I was doing, but the apple and the pear was symbolic and I can't exactly remember why now, but that was going to kind of provoke people. And also from my interview, they, they took the most provocative um, quote of mine and really took it out of context, which is you have to be very careful with journalists. That's why I love social media in, in some some respects, because you have a lot more control about how you are represented and what you're saying and, and people can't take you out of context so much. But anyway, and the, the title of this uh, interview was, if I had a teenager, I would give her a vibrator, which um, I don't think that's such a bad thing, but it, taken out of context, it can be really quite, quite provocative. And um, I woke up one day um, with a hangover. I don't drink anymore. So this was a long time ago. It was about six in the morning and my phone was just going beep, beep, beep of all these tweets everywhere. And people in Madrid and Barcelona were all reading this free newspaper on the underground and on buses. And I got lots of pictures of everyone with this free newspaper open and me on the front page. And the the online version was just full of trolling. Oh my God, it was unbelievable. So that was just too much to handle, especially with a hangover. And also I wanted to get a hold of one of these copies as well. So I had to go um, to a cafe and find it and disguise myself so people wouldn't recognize me on the cover. <laughs> it was It's quite amusing now to think back at it, but I did find those moments to be a bit too much. And it's not something that I could have coped with on a daily basis 
or more frequently than that. So, so now, ever since then, um, I gradually started to make content in English because I was receiving sex toys, and gradually I, I stopped making um, collaborating with the media and started making more content on my own platforms and in English and going global, which has really been good for my mental health because now I have this feeling of anonymity. I can walk down the street and people have kind of forgotten about me now because all this time when I was more famous in Spain was around maybe six, seven years ago at least. So now it's, um, I feel um, that I can enjoy being being uh, not recognized because sometimes I used to get recognized in the, in the supermarket. People were taking selfies with me or people writing, writing me messages saying, I've just seen you here and there and blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking, oh my God, who, the, who were they? So it was a very weird thing. And I remember once actually I went to this a cafe every Saturday morning. And there was some guy who was sending me direct messages on Twitter. And it was something he was telling me what I'd ordered. He could see me, what I was wearing. And this is a guy who had no profile picture. So it really freaked me out. And at first I thought, I'm still going to go to my favorite cafe. Why should I stop just because of some guys trying to freak me out? But um, yeah, it was a very, very, uh, very strange situation. Yeah, so that was that was quite hard, but now um, everything is a bit calmer. Yes, I do still receive negative comments, but I feel a lot more detached from them now, and I just see them as a massive um, sign or or test almost from the universe to say, if you want more growth, you're going to have more of this. Can you handle it? And the answer is yes, I can, because I I feel detached from certain comments. And there are certain um, videos on my YouTube channel that do provoke a lot of negative comments, but I leave them all there. I think it's important to not shy away from negativity or from people who don't agree with you. I think it's always, you can always learn from these people, but also there's lots of negativity that's just about people who feel bad inside and they want to project it. And I'm, and I'm the kind of objective of their, of their frustration, which, um, I think is part and parcel of, of being online. So it's been, um, it's been okay. And sometimes I also, because I make sexual content, I do get some comments um, from religious fanatics telling me that I should choose Jesus. And, uh, and because I talk about sex, I'm going to burn in hell, which is, I absolutely disagree with. I think sex is totally a divine thing. I feel very connected to God when I have an orgasm. And yeah, it's all good. But what I suffer most with is actually, is actually people who are obsessed. So not the negative ones. People would assume that the negativity or the negative attention is what is hardest or the haters, but it, it's not really for me. For me, it's people who become incredibly obsessed with me. And um, I've had to deal with quite a lot of that and people who randomly make video calls to me on Instagram. And I'm thinking, why would you do that? That's absolutely crazy. Or people who have notifications every time I post anywhere and they're just, you know, on the ball and um, writing messages like obsessively as if they know me personally, which is just um, a bit too much. It's kind of flattering at first because you think, wow, I'm really happy that my content makes people happy because that is the objective. But some people can kind of um, take it a bit too far with their obsessions, I suppose. And I've had to block a few people because of that. And it was very hard for me to do that because I thought I didn't want to, you know, attract any negativity, <laughs> negativity from these people who, you know, were 
too far too into me, but I did came, come across um, some, um, I think it's called celebrity worship disorder, which is quite interesting. I was um, investigating that and everyone who's kind of in the public eye to some degree does have to deal with it on, on different levels. And uh, it's very worrying actually, but uh, so that's really not something I would want to have any more of in my life. Um, so I'm kind of happy with my gradual, um, slow growth. And I'm kind of glad now that my followers are at least a massive ocean away from me. Cause I mean, now my following in Spain has reduced a lot. I don't really have that many followers in Spain at all. And uh, most of my followers are in the U S the UK, Germany, um, Australia and India. So everyone's quite far away. So I'm very happy to have all of those people following me, but uh, it's good as well that I can walk down the street and not have to think about having bodyguards or anything like that. And I can enjoy recognition um, from my work, but anonymity, which is very important. Now it's time for this episode's interview. I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Courtney Tracy, who describes herself as a no BS therapist, and she's also known as the truth doctor. Dr. Courtney Tracy, welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast, and thank you so much for taking part in this interview today. I'm very happy to have you here, especially after watching all of your videos and all your content. And you are known as the truth doctor. And for those who are not familiar with your work, what does this mean? And how did you choose this name, The Truth Doctor? Well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, yeah, so Dr. Courtney Tracy, known as The Truth Doctor. And, you know, The Truth Doctor, to me, when I think about, you know, what really makes people happy, what really makes them feel like they have a place in the world, um, it's living their truth, whatever that looks like. And so I think, you know, sometimes when people hear the truth doctor and they see me as a therapist, I think they may believe that what I'm trying to do is sort of uh, imply that I know the truth and I'm going to give it to my clients. But in reality, it's that what I'm trying to do is help my clients find their own truth that's underneath everything they've experienced in their life and everything that they may think about their life and who they are and, and see, is that really the case? And if not, then let's explore. So you studied psychology and you worked in you have several positions within the mental health industry. So how did you decide to actually start men making mental health content? I think it was unavoidable. <laughs> when I was growing up, I had a really difficult childhood that really introduced me to a lot of aspects of mental health, anxiety, depression, alcoholism, personality disorders, and so on and so forth. And so I, I was born with a lot of questions of why. Why do people do the things that they do? Why don't they do things that they should do? And why are we all so different when we're all also so similar? So I did my own experimentation with substances. I got severe anxiety. You know, I, I started to become a product of my environment. And in turn, I realized that I had to answer those questions, not only for myself, but for my family, and that it would be helpful to start to help others answer those questions so they weren't suffering like I saw my family or myself doing. So I started studying psychology at 17 in college, and I did that for 12 years. I got four degrees, and now I'm a doctor of clinical psychology and a licensed clinical social worker, just really trying to help people not live in the depths of their mind or their body just because they don't understand it. 
So there's one one reason maybe because I guess therapy is not um, accessible to everybody. I guess for costs and everything. So you're trying to make it more accessible. Is that is that one of the reasons? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I knew that my take on psychology and mental health by itself is unique and needed for people who are looking for my take on mental health and psychology. Um, but I, I opened up a mental health treatment center in the beginning of 2017 and went through a lot of ups and downs owning my own business starting at 26 years old um, and working, you know, owning a treatment center was a really big deal. Then the pandemic hit. And I saw such an increase and influx of new returning and increasing mental health issues. Um, And I was also going through a really intense family trauma that I experienced in the beginning of 2019. So at the end of 2019, I realized that I was starting to go back to my old habits. And if I was doing that as a therapist, then other people were probably doing that as well when they experienced something really intense. So I started The Truth Doctor on Instagram at the end of 2019. And within the first six months, the pandemic hit. And then we were all experiencing a mass trauma. And we were all experiencing these changes in our work, education, family, interpersonal, and our own lives. And I thought, okay, there and TikTok was starting to become on the rise. And so my cousin, who's a social media manager, said, your personality, your type of information and perspective could really help the types of communities that are on TikTok. So I brought the truth doctor to TikTok. And now it's been almost two years that I've had both the TikTok and the Instagram. And we're at almost 1.8 million people who are absorbing this information at a time when, when we really, really need it. So I guess there's not many people who are in this field who actually share their own experience, their own traumas, and you do. So what's the reason behind that? Is that to make you more relatable or because I've not really seen that very often with um, people. I guess we have this um, idea that every all therapists are kind of perfect or maybe that's the impression they give or that they have everything sorted, you know, they have all the answers. Yeah, yeah. So I wasn't, you know, I didn't sign up for being like one of the only therapists that's completely open about everything that she's ever been through. But when I started attending school to be a therapist, when I started my master's program and my and my doctoral program, I realized that I was too that I too was living in the facade that therapists were perfect, that therapists had all of their stuff together. Um, but as I was meeting the people in my cohorts, in my programs um, that were also pre-licensed, I realized that often what happens is as human beings becoming therapists, we are told to not tell our stories. So we're told to act less human. So we are almost developed into these people that have, that are supposed to be perceived as having all of our stuff together. And I have never lived an inauthentic life. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to do that. So I just First thing was, I'm never going to be inauthentic. I can't do it, but that shouldn't stop me from being a therapist. And the next thing was, I thought about, I understand that there's like a level of professionalism that we need to have when we're in the room with our clients, but there's also a level of humanness that we need to have. And sometimes I think that, 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 you know, there's studies that say between 40 to 70% of the of the success of therapy is the relationship that you have with your therapist. And that develops over time. And you don't have the relationship with your therapist as a professional. You do in terms of you trusting that they are 
educated and, and, and encouraging you in the right direction, but you start to actually build a relational bond with this person. And that's with them as a human being, things that you laugh about, or you learn their style. And maybe you talk about music every now and then, and it's not always um, healing work. You're also getting to know each other. And so I realized that if we do not show some, some aspect of our humanness. We don't have to share our, everybody doesn't have to share their stories the way that I do. I'm intentionally pushing the spectrum to a new level. And most people probably aren't going to do what I do. And I don't talk about myself in session the way that I do on social media, because that's, that is inappropriate. But I realized if we are hiding our humanness, what is that teaching our clients that are also humans? Are we saying, I'm a therapist and I have anxiety, but I have to hide it. What does that say to all of your clients that have anxiety? That anxiety is something to hide. And so I thought it was just helpful to break down the stigma. And also, like I said, push that, push that line where we don't just have to be blank slates. We can be human beings just like our clients. That brings me to your phrase then, human first, professional second. So tell me about this. Yes. So, so often in so many different cultures and so many different societies and so many different countries, we become our profession. We become just a therapist or just a doctor or just a lawyer, and we really lose ourselves. And I've read quite a few books on people's regrets in the last days of their lives. And it's that they didn't live their lives more for themselves, that they were not more authentic, that they focused more on themselves and less on work. And so I'm encouraging people who, like most of us, spend decades and decades and decades working to remember that you are a human being first and you need to take breaks and you need to be you because you don't want to only feel like you have the opportunity to be you after you've retired when you have 5, 10, 15, maybe 20 years left to live and you've lived decades and decades before that. Absolutely. Reminds, reminds me of a video that I saw recently, which is um, it's life advice from 100-year-olds. And it's all about, you know, relationships because we're not going to think about our work achievements so much when we're on our later years. It's more about quality time and emotions and right. life milestones. Let's talk about um, social media. So you had a very quick rise on social media. And how did that affect your mental health? Because that must have been very difficult having this, this big <laughs> rise. Very fast. Yeah, it was. And, and, Interestingly, though, I got on social media because my mental health was not doing great. And I came onto social media to say that, to say therapists are human beings and we're not perfect. And we have brains that have emotional parts of them and we have traumas and we have past. So it was actually helpful because it became an outlet for me in a positive way to bond with other people, especially in the middle of a pandemic when we're all isolated at home. And I think that for others who, even other therapists that got the same rise that I did through TikTok initially, they experienced a lot more um, negativity, a lot more pushback, a lot more hate, a lot more just kind of like trolling, just treating people poorly. And they were one of those people being treated poorly. And so I think because that didn't happen to me, um, and still hasn't really happened to me. I think that my mental health hasn't been affected, but it's given me an opportunity over the last two years to watch and connect with other therapists who have experienced 
these mental health issues as a direct result of being exposed to millions of people every month um, to learn how will I react if that does happen, especially as somebody with a history of interpersonal trauma, severe anxiety, um, and I have borderline personality disorder. So anybody, oh, wow. so anybody coming to me and saying anything negative at all in my past, it was immediately I suck. The world sucks. I'm going to delete my accounts. I'm going to, and just, and I've learned to redirect that over the years. And so now, even when I get little tiny comments that are like, therapists shouldn't be dressing like that, or a therapist <laughs> shouldn't say the F word or whatever, um, I've built resilience in knowing that those comments are exactly why I created this platform to shift those perspectives. But I do have to manage my physiology still when it comes to my severe anxiety, because it's just so physical. My heart will race. I'll like get lightheaded. And that's just par for the course of being a human that's had some hard experiences. Because being online, it's not just about negativity. There's just like that, just exposure in general and, and, and that attention and, um, every message or every beep on the phone is like a person in the end. It can be quite, quite overwhelming. And for me, I, I, I left my job in luxury real estate in 2009 and I set up a sex blog and I, I'm British, but I live in Spain. So I was quite well known in the Spanish media for a few, for the first like six years of my career, but my, my rise has been very gradual and it's still not even at your level, but there's been some peaks when I was in on front pages of newspapers and stuff. And I just find it a bit, a bit overwhelming. And, um, I think sometimes, um, the haters for me wasn't the hardest thing to deal with. Um, cause sometimes when someone makes a comment, it actually inspired me more to make new content rather than, Hey, that's great. We, we agree with that. You know what I mean? It's like, it kind yeah. of, it was, I kind of saw the positive and also I kind of thought it was like a test from the universe to see if I could handle more of it. You know what I mean? So I tried to kind <laughs> yeah. of look on the good side, but there's also another side of um, what I found hard, harder is actually the obsessed super fans. I mean, that, that's that for me, you know, when you, people who have notifications every time you post something and they're just kind of obsessed and they kind of have this idea of who you are just from, from your content and, and also create a burnout because that's a real thing as well. So if you have to, how have you coped with any of these things, especially create a burnout, because that's re very real with anyone who's um, creating content, because it's a lot of effort and energy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love everything that you talked about. Also, I'll, I'll touch on all three of them really briefly. So the first one um, was those negative comments and how those things can be inspiring. And so one of the only things that's happened to me over my career so far doing this um, is I was lip syncing to a song on TikTok and one of the words was sociopath. It was like the new Olivia Rodrigo song and just like, I guess you're just a sociopath. And I said the word, I mouthed the word. And sociopath is obviously a stigmatizing word for people with antisocial personality disorder, which I understand because I have a personality disorder in the same cluster. Somebody with antisocial personality disorder made a, a, a reply video saying you're a therapist and you just used a stigmatizing word like it was no big deal. And so I came out and I made an apology video because it was important. I didn't realize that I had done something that could affect other people. And that was encouraging for me. And I made multiple videos after that apology video destigmatizing personality disorders, specifically talking about antisocial personality disorder and why the word sociopath can harm people in this community and in this population. So I love that you sort of had that a similar experience where it kind of encouraged you to do more. Um, 
I'm not remembering what the second was, one was. He's like super fans because the one who, who like who like you too much. I found that more difficult than the haters. <laughs> yes, it definitely can be. It can be really overwhelming. And something that's interesting as a therapist having those types of super fans is that they, you know, I have a few of them, and they want me to acknowledge not, you know, it's it's not them saying, oh, like I love your outfit or I love this or I love that or thank you for the content. Instead, it's are you proud of me that I'm four days free from self-harming? Now I'm seven days. Now I'm 15 days. Now I'm 30 days. And it just goes on and on and on. And so it's really hard as a mental health professional to be exposed to so much of that information about other people randomly around the world and know my ethical and legal boundaries and personal boundaries, because these are not my clients and I, this is not my responsibility, but I have to really know them and I have to, and I have to, you know, I still want to give them access to me, just give everybody that enjoys my content access, but I do have to have really firm lines. And I often have had to block people before because they just are, I can tell that they're relying on me too much, even though my disclaimers are in place that this is not a replacement for therapy or for treatment. It can be tricky. <laughs> yeah, because I had just experienced recently and I, was, I started Googling and um, trying to do Dr. Google. And I found out this disorder called celebrity adoration disorder or something like that. It had, it had a name with celebrity and disorder in it. There's a middle word I can't quite remember. But it's a very real thing. And um, just and I think people kind of maybe think that because you might have replied to a few messages that they're, they're, you're their friend. And sometimes if you don't quite make the content that they want, they get angry. It's like you, you're they're their only the only your your only audience or something and um it's quite difficult to get to that point of blocking because you think oh your content brings them joy so if you block them it's kind of like acknowledging that something's not right Right. but then ignoring them it's a very difficult difficult situation yeah it really really is and and that almost like leads into the creative burnout that Mm -hmm. i think many of us experience but as a mental health professional it's like making mental health content dealing with my own mental health issues, hearing about all of my followers' mental health issues, which other creators don't have to do when they're not mental health focused. And so it's just the, cre- like you can't, most people are creative actively when they have space. They have space in their brain, they have space in their lives, space in their bodies to just flow and have fun. And so it can get really hard and really heavy with not only the type of content that I have to make, but also the type of responses that I get frequently. And that's just like the actual level of specific content that I'm doing. But on a broader scale, social media and the society of social media sort of expects us to show up in an innovative way, every single day, do something new, follow every trend, always know what the algorithm wants and doesn't want, and always respond to what everybody that's in your following is asking for. And that is just absolutely impossible to do. <laughs> it's impossible to do. And, and really the tip that I give people when they're experiencing this creative burnout is to just pause for a moment and realize that you don't have to show up every single day. You just don't have to show up every single day. The algorithm isn't giving you bonuses for showing up every single day. The algorithm is going to benefit you when you create content 
that you care about, that you can put your creativity into and that you can spend some time on. So you're allowed to pause. As a therapist, you are allowed to pause, but as a content creator and a human being too, I highly encourage pausing just because you can only go so far with so many ideas before you either lose yourself or you lose the quality of content. And also you can actually make content about creative burnout if you actually experience it. Right. That's a great thing in your field. Yeah, exactly. So you talk about the um, how important is it to acknowledge the unconscious and how can we do that? Well, it's well, I'm writing a book on oh, exactly great. how to do that. I'm actually starting to write the chapter one tomorrow. Um, oh. It'll be called Your Unconscious is Showing. And the reason why I think it's important to address your unconscious is because we live our lives in our default mode, in our autopilot way, way more often than we think we do. When I say, for example, that everybody eventually learns how to tie their shoes. And now when you tie your shoes, you don't really think about it. You just do it and you can do it while you're talking even. And that's because there's certain parts of your brain that have learned to do things like tying your shoes while you're having a conversation because we are dynamic. We're, we're a dynamic species and we multitask and, and we don't technically multitask, but we do do things at, you know, more, more than one thing at a time. And I think that people accept very easily that our brains could do something like memorize how to tie our shoes. And then we don't have to think about it, but we don't realize that our brains also memorize many other things that directly impact our relationships and our mental health. Our negative thoughts are automatic and are on autopilot. Who we like and don't like is automatic and on autopilot. What we think about money, what we think about love, sex, clothing, our, our career, over our whole life, all of these perspectives, belief systems, desires, and aversions have been created based off of every experience that we've ever had. And what our brain does is it says, this is a pattern that I've experienced for a little while in, let's say, difficult relationships in the past. So now I'm going to remind you every time that you go into a, a new relationship about all of these past ones and make you act as though you need to defend yourself in this new relationship even though it's a brand new relationship and your brain doesn't really know anything about it yet. And that's because it has all this stuff stored in your unconscious. And you don't realize that that's actually what you're running on because just like learning how to tie your shoes, your brain has learned how to protect you in relationships. So once we dive into all of that and we realize how many different aspects of our lives have have this story attached to them unconsciously and that we act based off of those stories, then we bring consciousness into our unconscious and we get the opportunity to say, wait a minute, what am I basing this feeling off of? What am I basing this thought off of? What am I basing my behavior off of? And it gives you agency to say, do I want to base my actions right now on my past and my unconscious or do I want to do something different consciously? Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the past because my experience of, um, I'm, I'm, I'm living in Barcelona, so I think to find a therapist who's kind of dynamic and forward thinking, it's quite difficult. They're all quite classic and it's talk therapy with kind of no feedback, no tools or anything. And I know some people might th think that's the kind of, there is, you know, some it might work for some people and there is, it does seem to work the first few sessions. But I found that after a while, I didn't want to become like Woody Allen, you know, when you're just talking about your life all the time and you're not really getting anywhere. And then you can kind of become addicted to this process because it's nice to speak about yourself for an hour a week to, to someone who's, who's impartial. So how mm -hmm. important is 
the, our childhood and, and how much does it influence our current problems? Because that's something that, because I think there's some therapies that are more kind of solution based, whereas the one I was seeing was kind of more cause based, like going back to traumas when I was three years old or five years old, et cetera. And, and just every week, I'm just not sure if, if I was, if I'd been there for another month, I'm not sure if I would have, would have re- reached any mm-hmm. kind of conclusion or understanding. Yeah. This is a great question. And actually the first third of my book is solely on this. It's solely on, well, the first, the first part of it is on childhood and, but, but really it's about like how we are raised and like what that means and, and how we don't understand how our mind and body work. But then the second one is about how, yes, it's important that our child, that we realize that our childhood affected us, but if we spend so much time there then we're actually spending our present time in the past. And it's not necessary to do that in most situations. But I think we're trained as therapists and and, and for decades, maybe like the entire course of being trained as a therapist or psychologist so far to really just allow the other person to, for us to learn about the client, our clients, and then for the clients to come up with the solutions themselves. So mm-hmm. what we, what most therapists do now is we just ask open-ended questions. Tell me about this. How do you feel about this? What do you think about this? And we're trying to provide, you're, we're trying to have you provide yourself the answers. And there is a lot of studies that show that, that, our own ability to come up with the solution ourselves makes us more likely to follow through with that solution. However, I've seen in my own work when I was first a therapist and I'm like, I feel like I'm not getting anywhere with my clients, just asking them open-ended questions and they're just telling me stories. And then we do the same thing next week and we do it again and again and again. And I was like, I can't do this. You know, I just, it feels like a waste of their money and their time for most clients. Sometimes that's really helpful. Maybe somebody's never had somebody to talk to and they really do just want to share. And that's helpful for parts of their brain to build the understanding and in the unconscious that you can have a conversation and another person will listen and care. But I think what I do now is I ask every client, what works best for you? Because the, the, the rule has been, do not tell your clients the solution to their problem because oh, yeah. then you give them, you take away their ability to figure out for themselves. But some clients want to know. They're like, just tell me, just tell me the truth. Just tell me, can you just tell me? Nobody ever tells me. They don't, no one's ever honest with me. So that's, I guess, a little part of like the truth doctor as well is like, I'll tell you if you want to know it. You know, I, I'll work with you for a little bit, but if you really just want me to tell you after X amount of time, then I will. But if I tell you, we need to then work backwards. Well, if I tell you, we have to figure out, I want you to understand it. You know, I don't want you to say, okay, thank you so much. Now I know, and I'm cured and everything's better. No, because even it's just, it's kind of like a math problem. If you get the answer, you have the, you have the equation and you have the answer, but you have to work backwards to figure out how to actually do those equations, right? Because you can't go and take a math test if you know the answers and the equations, but you have no idea how to get there. And so I think that what we're moving towards in the therapy world is, is, is a new wave of, of being able to be a human being that says, I have this education and this experience, and this is what I see. This is what I think is going on. Do you agree? Do you understand? If not, then how can I help you? 
yeah, I think it's really important to have some objectives. That's something I regret. So I, was, I was doing therapy early this year from April to to August. And it was something I was, because I have this private healthcare and I was thinking I'm going to make the most of it now and, and just get have an emotional detox. But one of my main problems was that I have this overactive bladder situation, which is just psychological at night. I go to bed and then and I think, oh, my bladder's not empty. And I get up to the loo and I, I kind of go obsessively. It could be, if I'm nervous, it could be up to 10 times. It's, it's really crazy. Um, so it's kind of like when I'm, when I'm very stressed and I've been through a lot this, this year. So that was my main motive for going to the, um, to, to, to war therapy, but I've got, I hadn't, but my life is actually a lot calmer now. So it, it's kind of the situation is not so stressful, but for me, I was thinking I'd rather have someone give me an affirmation or some kind of tools to kind of deal with it, you know, like maybe CBT or something like that, rather than going back to when I was three, cause I've had kidney infections all my life. It's kind of my, my weak area. So, so I kind of, thought mm, this wasn't really feeling right and also the, the therapist couldn't even say the word she's we were speaking in spanish but she said that thing that happens to you and that's like giving it even more shame because obviously words are very very powerful right i was thinking i can't go to someone who doesn't really know what's going on with me how can yeah. how are they going to help me you know oh completely yeah there's yeah. so many it's like we're not really taught as um as consumers of therapy or therapists, how to find the right one or what questions to ask or which type would be the best for us. And so I think that's something that's really missing. And I, I wish that more therapists would really inquire more often and be more specific about how they work with people and what it is that they do and to continuously check in at the end of every session. How is this going for you? I would be comfortable with your feedback. If, if you're looking for something else I can't provide, let me help you versus just leaving it up to the client to kind of be a little uncomfortable. And like, do I say something like, am I the, am I supposed to be getting help? And it's something wrong with me instead. And like, we, we often six, I've been a client too many times. And I'm like, and even I, as a therapist, I'm like, I don't know if I should say anything. Like, I don't know. And, and so I think it's on the therapist to say, is this working? What would you like to try? And also in the beginning, here's who I am and what I do. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah, because there's so many types of therapy out there and so many great things as well. And I read an incredible article in the Daily Mail about therapy. And it was talking about all these women who'd spent thousands and thousands on talk therapy, but they were still kind of stuck in a rut. It was someone who, and one of them was talking about how she went to this group counseling um, for grief and and one of the people there who lost a husband like 15 years earlier was that was her primary identity. It was still a, a widow, and it was just like you've got to kind of move pa- move past things and get. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I'm really focused. On, the next thing to therapy I'm going to do is going to be definitely more solution based, or definitely, definitely that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. What's your, what do you think is a, the signs of a bad therapist then? Well, I think that really interestingly, one sign is that the therapist talks more about themselves than about you or what's bringing you in. And I've been accused of being that type of therapist before, but not by any of my clients, just by people on social media, because I talk about myself so much on those platforms intentionally to be sort of the medium for people to see that it's possible to be open about your mental health. But that would definitely be one of them is, and, and I've heard so many stories of clients saying like, yes, I told my therapist that my dad was um, uh, going to reach the end of his life soon. And she spent the whole session talking about her dad who had passed, thinking that that was going to make me feel better 
but didn't get, didn't ask permission if I wanted to hear that story. Didn't. So that's like a, that's just not a good sign. Cause then you're paying for mm-hmm. their therapy, basically yeah, yeah, like their talk therapy, which is not good. Um, also, I think that a really important, um, every client should ask their therapist, what is your protocol for, um, like psychiatric holds. And if I talk about suicidal thoughts, cause there's such a spectrum of just feeling like you want your life to change and you don't want to live it anymore all the way to, I have a plan and an intent to end my life. But often therapists will, when they hear any inkling of, of passive suicidality or anything like that, they, out of their own fear for their own license will automatically like report it. And that's not helpful for the client because that's just going to make them more afraid to ever share with anybody ever and could actually increase the likelihood that that could happen. So it's an important thing to ask, just like, what are your typical protocols and emergencies? Or if like, I really decline very quickly and you want to make sure that you have a therapist that's able to manage emergencies and situations like that without just going straight to trying to protect their own license. And then I would also say that any therapist that tries to do something outside of their scope, like I don't work with young children because I don't have experience working with young children. I don't work with eating disorders because I don't have experience working with eating disorders, but there are some therapists that will just say, oh yeah, come in and I'll treat you. And then you're not getting the actual effective and specialized care that you likely need that other therapists would have that spent time and continue to spend time um, getting education and doing research or CE units, um, which is just learning more and specializing more as time goes on. So those are three things that I think are very important. Yeah, for me, that was one of the reasons I stopped because I think this therapist doesn't really know what's going on with me. So what's the point, you know? And also, yeah. also I've had therapy in the past as well when I was a university student with two different counsellors. And um, we talked a lot. I think it, there's a lot, a lot of emphasis on talking about childhood because obviously that's very important. Um, obviously, many many people have, even if they've had a good childhood, there are, there are always some traumas from, from the past that, 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 that can affect our, our relationships, etc., you talked about reparenting in one of your videos. So how can someone who's had a, a traumatic childhood um, reparent themselves? That's a great question. It really starts with realizing that you are taking care of yourself now. What parents do is they take care of us mm-hmm. or they don't take care of us. And then we end up getting to a place where we need to reparent ourselves. But something that's important to know is often when people hear reparent, they think, oh, I have to have a bad relationship with my parents or my parents had to have done a terrible job. And that's not always the case. Reparenting is realizing that now you are responsible for taking care of yourself and you should explore how you actually do that. So for example, my mom never taught me how to brush my teeth ever. And I had horrible oral hygiene for a really long time until I realized that the only reason that I'm not taking care of my teeth the way that I need to is because my mother did not teach me to take care of my teeth or did not and did not take care of mine also. So I had to make the conscious choice to reparent that aspect of my understanding of how I respect and take care of myself. And I have had to work on it for a really long time. And so the thing is, is like there and, you know, there were lots of other difficult situations in my childhood, but let's say somebody that had a great childhood, but just their parents never taught them oral hygiene, you know? So you don't have, you didn't have a traumatic 
childhood, but you need to relearn and reteach yourself how to take care of yourself. And another example could be how you perceive money. So when I was growing up, my mom just spent money like no other, but she didn't have any of it. And so we were in a lot of financial distress, moved often, lived with my grandparents often. And I actually did the opposite. I came out being obsessed with money in terms of saving it and needing to be stable constantly all the time, overworking, like always going above and beyond because I was afraid of being in a similar situation that I found myself in with my mother. And I needed to reparent that part of myself a little bit too. And that was just a belief system. That was just a perspective and an understanding of this aspect of life. And I had to like release myself and be like, I need to calm down a little, you know, like I'm over parenting myself right now when it comes to finances and I should give myself some more leeway and some more rest. So it's really just about, again, how you absorb the world how you perceive it and how you perceive yourself and giving yourself permission to be the, the ruler of your own behaviors um, and detach if you need to from whatever is in your unconscious from before you are making choices yourself. I was thinking of looking at the childhood all the time, you can actually blame, blame our, our parents, our parents as well, rather than being accountable for your current situation. That can happen. Oh, completely. That's such mm -hmm. a thing. I feel like, you know, since I've been on social media as a therapist, I actually just, I was following around 1500 people and most of them were therapists and I would be scrolling through my feed and I was getting so overwhelmed by just the constant reminders of childhood trauma. And if this was in your childhood, then you may have this. And, and I had to, I unfollowed like 1100 people. I was just like, I can't have so much of this in my feed of the, the constant reminders, because while that is true, that aspects of your childhood can affect your adulthood, there's so much more to it, just like you said. But if we're constantly reminded and are only shown or are only talked to about our childhood, then it does. It takes away personal responsibility and accountability. It also takes away that somebody may have had a great childhood, but a horrible a romantic relationship situation. And they could also end up with anxiety or end up with jealousy or isolation or whatever. And so we really discount all of the potential variables by just going in like something that's the most trendy or like, you know, everybody has a childhood. So if I talk about childhood then everybody can relate to it. So I totally get what you're saying when you say that. <laughs> Yeah, this summer, I went to this incredible retreat in the South of France with this amazing garden. And one of the the, the the text on the website said, imagine Tom's Midnight Garden, which is a, a very famous like, cartoon or book. And I used to watch as a child. It's a very incredible series where this guy wakes up in the middle of the night and he goes into this garden. And I remembered it so, with very fond memories. Then I went to kind of look at it on YouTube and it was nothing like how I, how I remember that the actor was different, the garden was different. And even some of the characters were, it's incredible how our memory can not even be correct you know we can have distorted memories as well so we're giving a lot of power to the past you know absolutely yeah and I think another like one like one really common thing is oh I must have had a traumatic childhood because I don't remember it mm. and it's like no me that's how memory works <laughs> like memory works where over time new memories replace old memories and eventually memories decay in general so I think when we when we tell people or like when, when you're constantly seeing not remembering your childhood it could mean that you have trauma and it's constant and constant. We, we were really discounting also that like, that's just how the brain works too, you know? And so we may be um, 
like just, yeah, having a lot of people diagnose themselves when their brains are working normal. (laughs) A couple of quick questions. What's the book that changed your life? The book that changed my life was The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And it talks about how we store emotional issues in our body and that our mind and body are connected. And it was all through science. And so, and that I loved that because we can get really metaphorical, but it really taught me and teaches people like, what does that actually mean? Oh, that's interesting. That's on my list actually on on Amazon, um, that book. I've heard about it a lot. Um, And what, um, what is the phrase or affirmation that you live by? Your unconscious is showing. Oh, cool. The title (laughs) of your book. Yeah. Yes. Fantastic. (laughs) Okay. So where can, where can people find you? You can go to my website, thetruthdoctor.com and my two primary social media accounts are Instagram and TikTok. And the handle is the period truth period doctor. Fantastic. So Dr. Courtney Tracy, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been very interesting and we'll be checking out your book. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. The book I'm reading now is Modern Sex Magic, Secrets of Erotic Spirituality by Donald Michael Craig. I've spoken about sex magic several times on this podcast, and it's something that absolutely fascinates me. Sex magic is using sexual energy and orgasmic energy to manifest. So it's kind of like the law of attraction, but a more, much more orgasmic version of it. And it tends to be a bit more ritualistic as well. I've been very interested in this topic for about three and a half years now, and I'm always looking for new books and to learn more about it. So I found this book on Amazon. It was quite difficult to get a hold of, which sometimes can be because it's a good book. It's quite an old book, and it really I was really drawn to it because of the reviews, and it's very simply written as well. And it's not doesn't have any kind of like dark woo-woo stuff. Well, it's a little bit woo-woo, like just like the rest of this subject. But it's a very, very e- it's a very easy book to read. And also, I've read many books about sex magic already, but I would say this would be a good starting point for anyone who is new to this topic or intrigued about it. And it's quite a big book. It's very easy to read and it talks about the history of sex magic, different theories, different tools you can use. And then it talks about how to do it as a solo person, monofocal sex magic, and then duofocal with a partner and polyfocal, which I'm not too interested in doing it in a group setting, not at all. And something that really, um, really, I was really interested in in this book or something I really liked was how it talks about the power of menstrual fluid. I found that to be incredibly empowering because as women, we often feel, well, many women can suffer because of their periods. They might feel it's a painful time, it's uncomfortable, or some people might think it's dirty or smelly or whatever. And also some religions can kind of have ingrained into us that it's a kind of impure moment of the month, which I completely disagree with. And also in many sexual, sex magic or spiritual circles, many people do value the power and potency of menstrual fluid. I know some people, for example, who use menstrual cups for their period. And when they, when they are about to empty them, instead of pouring the blood down the toilet, they would water a plant with it because it is very, it's a very, it is magical, definitely. And I, I just love that perspective on it. 
And also something that I really loved was there's a section about um, from the female perspective, because obviously orgasm and sexual energy is quite different from a male or female perspective. And many sex magic books can be written more from a male perspective. So it's very nice of this author to actually take into account the female perspective. And he did interview some female, not interview, yes, some female sex magicians to participate in the book. And this is something I read today, which is about sex toys, which I found amazing. Anyway, let me read. Accordingly, all sex toys should be honoured and treated as ritual magical objects. They may be the most powerful magical tools ever to reside in one's sacred repertoire, but are often treated much the way the male sex magicians of old treated their partners, as objects hidden away or abandoned in disgust or indifference when not being used. The sex act and all peripheral aspects of it must be considered sacred. Wow, how amazing is that? I feel totally honoured and magical to know that I have 700 magical objects in my possession. So this has inspired me to maybe do a ritual now every time I receive a new sex toy. It's kind of like a magic wand. And that is from Modern Sex Magic, Secrets of Erotic Spirituality by Donald Michael Craig. Now it's time to slow things down as we prepare for this episode's Guided Affirmations Meditation. It's probably not a good idea to listen to this while driving or operating machinery. Instead, take a break from whatever you're doing, get comfortable, take a deep breath and enjoy. I release my worries. 
I let go of my problems. When I'm anxious, I can take a deep breath. Breathe in. Breathe out. I am calm. I am safe. I am supported. I am loved. I can express my emotions. I can cope with stress. When I'm anxious, I can take a deep breath. Breathe in. Breathe out. I am calm. I am safe. Asking for help is a sign of strength. I am strong. I accept my struggles and I'm working through them. I accept my trauma and I'm learning from it. When I'm anxious, I can take a deep breath. Breathe in. To find out more about me and my orgasmic lifestyle, visit venusohara.org or follow me on Instagram at instagram.com slash venusohara. Make sure to search for the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. Have an orgasmic week and make sure every day is a climax.